Good morning. On behalf of the Matthew J. Ryan Center, I'd like to welcome you all to Villanova University's Constitution Day events, sponsored by the Ryan Center, the APGAR Foundation, the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, the Political Science Department, and the Office of Academic Affairs. A special thank you to all of our sponsors. Today's events will examine the legacies of two prominent American founders, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. We are fortunate to have two distinguished scholars with us to help us accomplish the task, Dr. Stephen Knott and Dr. David Tucker, who will each deliver a lecture this morning and then will participate in a roundtable discussion this afternoon at 1 o'clock in the cinema. Also participating in the roundtable will be Dr. Lawrence Little, professor of history here at Villanova, and Dr. Lara Brown, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Villanova. I'd like to take this opportunity to introduce Dr. Brown, who has been instrumental in planning today's events. Uh, Dr. Brown's main research interests are national elections, political parties, and American political development. She recently completed a book manuscript on presidential aspirants from 1796 to 2008 for Texas A&M University Press. Dr. Brown served in President Bill Clinton's administration as the coordinator for corporate outreach at the U.S. Department of Education. In 2001, she earned her Ph.D. in political science from the University of California, Los Angeles. Let's welcome Dr. Brown. Thank you, Sue. It's really a pleasure uh, to be here today. I. For those of you who know me, you know that the Constitution and really the 1790s is just one of my favorite eras of American history. I think uh, there are incredible lessons to learn and uh, exciting debates to be had. So I am thrilled to be here with two scholars whom I respect tremendously, um, Dr. Stephen Knott and Dr. David Tucker. Uh, both have written uh, wonderful books on Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, respectively. And I'd like to just review uh, Dr. Knott's biography and then introduce him to speak. And later today, we'll go through uh, Dr. Tucker's. So Stephen Knott is an associate professor of national security studies at the US Naval War College. He served as co-chair of the University of Virginia's presidential oral history program and directed the Ronald Reagan Oral History Project. Dr. Knott received his PhD in political science from Boston College, and he's taught at the United States Air Force Academy and the University of Virginia. 
He has written a book um, on Alexander Hamilton and really how Hamilton's thoughts and uh, sort of image have cycled through history in various different ways. And the book is called Alexander Hamilton and the Persistence of Myth. Uh, I recommend it greatly. And I look forward to hearing his talk today entitled Alexander Hamilton's Constitutional Legacy. Thanks. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. Thank you all for coming this morning. Uh, I'm hoping, uh, I was going to say, I, I hope Hamilton draws a crowd equal to the crowd that Jefferson draws, but uh, <laughs> maybe it's got something to do with the time of day. Uh, but I want to commend Villanova for uh, hosting this conference, or this uh, panel discussion today. Uh, Constitution Day used to be something that was widely celebrated in the United States. Uh, it began to lose some of its luster in the early to mid 20th century in part due to the uh, progressive critique of, of the Constitution as a somewhat uh, outmoded document. So I'm glad to see, thanks to Robert Byrd, I understand, uh, the reason we're all here today. Uh, uh, Senator Byrd, I guess, uh, a few years back passed some legislation that sort of, does it mandate the, uh, <laughs> yeah? It does, okay, yeah. Well, thanks to Senator Byrd as well for that Hamiltonian mandate. Uh, I would like to talk to you today about Alexander Hamilton's constitutional legacy, uh, but let me begin by observing that I believe that Hamilton has never received the credit he is due from both scholars and the American public. Uh, he has been overshadowed by his great rival, Thomas Jefferson. And the division between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton has, in many ways, permeated the consciousness and self-understanding of Americans. Uh, in 1987, President Ronald Reagan, speaking at a bicentennial celebration for the Constitution, could capture and express perfectly the prevailing national sentiment with the simple affirmation that, quote, we are still Jefferson's children, end quote. But Reagan might well have added these comments from his friend George Will. There is an elegant memorial in Washington to Jefferson but none to Hamilton. However, if you seek Hamilton's monument, look around. You are living in it. We honor Jefferson, but live in Hamilton's country." End quote. While George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln have eclipsed Hamilton in the American mind, it was Alexander Hamilton who made the 20th century the American century. Clearly, the more immediate sources of American power in that century were traceable to the actions of Abraham Lincoln in preserving the nation, arguably to the two Roosevelts, to Woodrow Wilson, and many of the Cold War presidents. But the foundation of America's superpower status was laid in the early days of the Republic, when Hamilton, who had a vision of American greatness, battled with forces fearful of the concentrated political, economic, and military power necessary to achieve that greatness. All of Hamilton's endeavors were directed toward establishing the United States as a formidable nation, efforts which ultimately came to fruition. The Hamiltonian blueprint for America, which lay in considerable tension with Jefferson's hopes for the new nation, consisted in the following. The creation of an, integra of an integrated economy, eventually capable of surpassing that of the European powers in manufacturing, a federal judiciary with adequate powers to protect property and liberties from democratic excess, 
the establishment of a professional army and navy, and the creation of an energetic chief executive with commander-in-chief powers that would enable him to repel foreign attacks and suppress domestic insurrections. Let me begin by talking about these four elements of Hamilton's legacy, starting with his plan to create an integrated economy capable of surpassing the European powers. First, Hamilton wanted the new, newly created federal government to assume the debts contracted by the states during the American Revolution. This, of course, passed due to his deal with Madison and Jefferson over the location of the United States Capitol. Secondly, he wanted to create a national bank to facilitate the economic policies of the federal government and also, perhaps more importantly, serve as a catalyst for national growth. The bank would be, quote, a nursery of national wealth, as Hamilton put it. He viewed the power to create it as part of the government's implied powers. Third, the federal government would take steps to transform America into a manufacturing power. And in the short run, of course, he was, he was less than successful on this front, although in the long run, his vision came to pass. This would render the United States independent from foreign nations and was especially important in terms of ensuring that the nation had the military supplies it would need during wartime. Hamilton linked political independence to economic independence. He did not want to destroy the agricultural sector of our economy, but he wanted to, quote, multiply the objects of enterprise, end quote, and, quote, stimulate the activity of the human mind. Hamilton was way ahead of his time, and his vision came to pass, perhaps more than we might desire, and we can talk about that later. And, you know, there is an argument to be made about the corrosive effect of Hamilton's commercial republic on the virtue of the people. Let me now turn to discuss Hamilton's role in creating a federal judiciary with adequate powers to protect property and liberties from democratic excess. First, Hamilton's contribution in this area was indirect but significant. He considered the lack of judicial power to be the crowning defect of the Articles of Confederation. Through his arguments in the Federalist Papers, particularly Federalist Number 78, Hamilton influenced, influenced generations of Americans, particularly John Marshall, on the importance of a uniform rule of civil justice, which he believed would promote stability and assist commerce. Equally important was the role the federal judiciary would play in acting as a barrier against legislative encroachments on liberty. Having said this, it is important to note that Hamilton was not a believer in an activist judiciary. In fact, he would be considered something of a strict constructionist in our time. He argued that permanency in judicial appointments would work against judicial activism by fostering respect for precedent and procedure on the part of judges. And that knowledge of this precedence and procedure could only come from years of experience. I'm not sure I'm convinced by this argument, but I remain a supporter myself of lifetime judicial appointments. His influence on John Marshall, as I mentioned, could clearly be seen in such landmark cases as McCulloch versus Maryland, Marbury versus Madison, and in countless other cases. Marshall, John Marshall, viewed Hamilton as the towering legal mind of his era. Now, regarding the establishment of a professional army and navy, 
Hamilton had witnessed firsthand the costs of conducting war without sufficient levels of military professionalism and preparedness. His wartime experience as George Washington's, at George Washington's side was critical to the formation of his entire outlook on the role of government. He thought that the militia system was a poor substitute for a professional military. And of course, this challenged a sacred myth cherished by many Americans, especially the anti-federalists. Hamilton made the case in the Federalist Papers to give Congress the authority to provide for a peacetime standing army, again challenging anti-federalist orthodoxy. Hamilton sought to establish four separate military academies, one for the cavalry, one for the infantry, one for artillerists, and then a naval academy. Thomas Jefferson, as in many instances, opposed Hamilton on this during the Washington administration, but would reverse himself later. Hamilton was a strong advocate for military power, excuse me, for naval power as a means of defending America's international commerce. His naval programs, along with those of President John Adams, were gutted by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, leaving the United States ill-prepared for the War of 1812. But Hamilton's understanding, <coughs> excuse me, that respect in the international arena was dependent in great measure on military power guided the United States to international prominence in the 20th century. And finally, Hamilton's role in contributing to establishing an energetic executive. He believed that presidential decision, activity, secrecy, and dispatch were essential to shrewd and coherent foreign policy making, particularly during wartime. And Hamilton believed a strong executive was essential for the steady administration of the laws, particularly in regards to protecting property. The president was uniquely situated to secure liberty, against the dangers of faction, which is why Hamilton urged such a robust response to the Whiskey Rebellion of 1794. And we could talk about the Whiskey Rebellion later because it's one of those events in his life that have led some people to view him as something of an autocrat. In the great debate over the Neutrality Proclamation of 1793, Hamilton interpreted the language of Article II rather expansively, Article II dealing with presidential power. He believed the vesting clause gave the president the leeway to conduct foreign policy with considerable latitude, except in those areas where Congress had been given explicit authority in Article I. For better or worse, and I would argue for the better, this interpretation has been followed by many of our presidents, and as I've mentioned before, contributed to the United States triumph in the 20th century over fascism and communism. In Federalist number 23 and Federalist number 25, Hamilton discussed the law of necessity and of the need to avoid fettering the government with restrictions that cannot be observed when necessity dictates. Now, <clears throat> arguably, we have drifted far from Hamilton's constitutional vision and the vision of the other framers, for that matter, regarding how the American government should function. Uh, our presidents are often selected from a process that places a premium on media skills and fundraising potential rather than on character and ability. We expect our presidents to feel our pain and his greatness is frequently measured in terms of his ability to rally the public with appeals to emotion rather than reason. 
uh, directly elected Senate is seen as, as arguably, I would say, as boisterous and poll-driven as the House of Representatives it was designed to temper, while the judiciary engages in policymaking and is often in the forefront of change rather than an anchor of tradition. This diversion, divergence from the intentions of the framers was accompanied by a rapid decline in the quality of the nation's politics. Pandering to the people and resorting to base appeals to mobilize the citizenry has become common practice, and this sort of populist politics has led, as Hamilton would have predicted, to a decline in the people's respect for their government. A return to Hamiltonianism could help fix much of what ails American politics, although, believe me, I realize this is unlikely. And part of the problem lies in the fact that Hamilton and Hamiltonianism remain a somewhat neglected part of our past. Until recently, uh, Hamilton has remained eclipsed by his great rival from Virginia. Now, there are some signs that this is beginning to end, but I would like to spend a few minutes talking to you about why I think Hamilton has never received his due. Uh, and I'll start by talking about the, the, the 20th century, was, which is where he really went into eclipse and Jefferson was elevated into the American pantheon. At the beginning of the 20th century, Hamilton was dubbed the father of American capitalism and American constitutionalism. But at the beginning of the 20th century, both the Constitution and capitalism were increasingly seen as impediments to social progress, and Hamilton's reputation began to recede. Hamilton's status was also damaged by the fact that he was a hero to Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge, two chief executives guaranteed to repulse the sensibilities of most historians and political scientists, fair or not. Uh, it was Warren Harding who erected Hamilton's lone public monument in Washington, D.C. on the grounds of the Treasury Department, while Coolidge's own Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon, who was considered by many the villain of the Great Depression, um, was the person who, who, who dedicated that statue. When Hamilton's fellow New Yorker, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, elevated Jefferson into the trinity of American mortals, he by default forced Hamilton into eclipse. Jefferson had always been an idol within the ranks of the Democratic Party, and now he joined the august company of Washington and Lincoln as a nonpartisan national icon. It's Franklin Roosevelt who built the impressive title base and memorial to Jefferson. Uh, Roosevelt replaced the buffalo on the nickel with Jefferson's face. He selected him to adorn the most commonly used first-class stamp, and FDR invoked Jeffersonian rhetoric in numerous speeches, including his Four Freedoms Crusade and in his vision for, a United Nation, for the United Nations. FDR's infatuation with all things Jefferson stemmed in part from his understanding of the need to placate Southern Democrats in the wake of the disastrous rout of fellow New Yorker Al Smith in 1928. What better signal to send? This New York government, governor, despite his Harvard education and patrician roots, was no Hamiltonian. The only book review Franklin Roosevelt ever wrote was of Claude Bauer's Jefferson and Hamilton, The Struggle for Democracy in America, a breathless account of how close the nation came to slipping into despotism were it not for the heroic efforts of the sage of Monticello. 
FDR loved this book and rewarded Bowers with an ambassadorship for his work on behalf of the Democratic Party. The great Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone was inspired to publish his monumental biography of Jefferson as a result of reading Bowers' book and Bowers' simplistic good versus evil approach to the Hamilton-Jefferson controversy influenced the work of many 20th century American historians. Hamilton's reputation reached its lowest point during the New Deal, and his few lonely defenders were reduced to arguing during the Second World War that Hamilton would, would in fact have opposed Nazism. Thank you, David. <laughs> I mean, it is astounding. You go back and look at, particularly during the Second World War, this, this uh, a number of articles in various popular publications equating Hamilton with you know, Mussolini and fascism and so forth. In 1960, the historian Merrill Peterson published his award-winning book, The Jefferson Image in the American Mind. The release of Peterson's book came three years after a muted celebration of the bicentennial of Alexander Hamilton's birthday. Peterson contrasted the spacious grandeur of Jefferson's plantation at Monticello with Hamilton's shabby and virtually anonymous Harlem home and saw them as symbols of their respective standing. Fortunately for Hamilton, scholars in the late 20th century began to focus increasingly on race as the defining issue in American life. And the contrasting records of one of the largest slaveholders in Virginia with a founding member of the Society for Promotion of the Manumission of Slaves played to Hamilton's advantage. Hamilton's status in the American mind is linked, permanently linked, to that of his great rival from Virginia. And throughout American history, it has been an iron law that as one fell, the other rose. Jefferson and the Jeffersonians would have it no other way. Uh, as Jefferson was fond of saying to guests who gazed at busts of himself and Hamilton in the entrance hall of Monticello, opposed in death as in life. There was something else at work in Hamilton's late 20th century rehabilitation, in that this illegitimate immigrant from the Caribbean who worked his way to the top of American society was a rarity among the founders, many of whom had inherited their wealth and power. Hamilton was America's first self-made man, the personification of the American dream, and in an increasingly diverse nation of immigrants, this stood him well. At the dawn of the new millennium, it was clear that Hamilton had made a comeback, at least in the minds of many American historians and political scientists. The caricatured Hamilton of Claude Bowers and Dumas Malone finally gave way to a more three-dimensional understanding of the man and his principles. It is unlikely, however, that he will ever make or ever displace Jefferson in the hearts of Americans. Far too many unflattering statements about the wisdom of the public are attributed to him, although some of these he probably never uttered. Nonetheless, Hamilton never pandered to the public, and this cost him in his lifetime and beyond. Additionally, Hamilton was less of a Renaissance man than Jefferson, showing little interest in playing the violin, dancing the minuet, or designing farm implements, and as a result, he has been a less interesting biographical subject. Jefferson also captures our imagination because he was the poet of the American Revolution who lent a rhetorical majesty to the glorious cause. 
an idealist uh, who who give uh, excuse me. Uh, an idealist who gives the, the American experience, the American Revolution, uh, something higher. Uh, Hamilton, of course, in some ways, because he becomes our first Treasury Secretary, is in a way our first national accountant. And it's kind of hard to fall in love with your accountant, whereas people fall in love with, I think, poets far more, far more easily. And so uh, Jefferson gave us a sense of higher purpose. But if Jefferson was the poet, Hamilton was the architect and engineer of the American founding, the builder of institutions that allow free men and women to live their lives in a stable political order. We are not moved by these types of accomplishments, although we benefit greatly from them, and liberty would be impossible without them. Alexander Hamilton was the leading nationalist of his time, and he envisioned the day, as I've said before, when the United States would emerge as a superpower. Hamilton's vision came to pass in the 20th century, ironically at the very moment when his reputation was at its lowest ebb. It, 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 I think, for me, have, you know, having written the book that Laura mentioned about Alexander Hamilton and the persistence of myth, there's something very sad about this. Uh, that, that this person who, and I, you know, I'll try to avoid getting too, too emotional here, Hamilton's not the kind of guy that generates usually strong emotions, but um, there is something sad about the fact that this man, who I would argue, of course, in concert with President Washington, none of this would have been possible at all without George Washington, and nobody understood that fact better than Alexander Hamilton. But the kinds of things we, things we as Americans take for granted are, 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 we owe so much to Alexander Hamilton, and I'm hoping in this new millennium uh, that we'll finally recognize uh, how, how much he's already given us and how much we owe him. And I would like to uh, reserve the bulk of my time to take any questions you may have. Thank you. I held back taking a few you know, stronger shots at Jefferson. Maybe I should have done that so that we would generate some early morning discussion. I, I lived in Charlottesville, Virginia for six years when I was at the University of Virginia. My Hamilton book came out within three months after my arrival in Charlottesville. And I tell you, I, had to, I felt like I had to go around wearing a Kevlar vest <laughs> with a bag over my head so that no one would... I was the lone Hamiltonian in Charlottesville. Yes? What was their personal relationship like in terms of, you know, that you always hear like Lyndon Johnson and Bobby Kennedy being in the room and their hair standing on end because they just disliked each other? Were they civil to each other? What were they like on a personal level? It was fine at first. Um, <clears throat> they really are to assume the duties of uh, Secretary of State. Um, Hamilton was, depending on, how, we're not even sure when Hamilton was born, that's how much mystery there is about his early years, but Hamilton was probably about 14 years younger than Jefferson. So there was a, a bit of an age gap there. Um, at first it was civil, um, maybe even slightly beyond civil, you know, friendly, uh, but it didn't take long. And I think, obviously, the, the, po the policy differences were great, but there was also a deep personality difference between the two in that Hamilton was very much in your face. He was very direct about things and in that sense he was not a good politician. 
Jefferson was uh, much better at using his lieutenants to do his, his bidding for him. Uh, so if you had a dispute with Hamilton, you knew it, and he was, he was very direct with you about it. That was something that Thomas Jefferson did not appreciate. And uh, so I think there was, a, there was a shyness about Jefferson. You can't really say Hamilton was shy. Um, so you've got an age difference. You've got the fact that Hamilton has served at Washington's side during the Revolution, and there's a bond there that you know, people who have served in the military would say it's, it's a kind of bond that can't exist anywhere else. So I think Jefferson resented the fact, or at least came to resent the fact, that this young immigrant, um, not from a particularly good family, was known that he was a bastard. Um, and he's got this incredibly tight relationship with Jefferson's fellow Virginian, George Washington. That irked Jefferson to no end. And then when Washington repeatedly comes down on the side of Hamilton in these major policy disputes, uh, that even furthers this antagonism. I think Hamilton was far more upset over the fact that Madison ultimately broke with him because clearly in terms of writing the Federalist Papers the two had worked well together and I don't think Hamilton ever completely understood why Madison abandoned him. So there was a tighter bond between Hamilton and Madison for sure than there was between Hamilton and Jefferson. And, you know, as the 1790s wears on, it just becomes, you know, one of the bloodiest partisan disputes in our history, arguably. I mean, when you have Jefferson instructing his lieutenants to basically portray Hamilton as a monarchist, which is the equivalent of saying somebody was a communist in the 1950s, that's, talk about the politics of personal destruction. Did the relationship change at all once Jefferson was elected? Being Hamilton's, you know, was it too far gone by that? Point? It was too far gone. Uh, and Hamilton was convinced. He wrote a letter shortly after his eldest son was killed in a duel. And he was clearly down in the dumps for obvious reasons. He, he loved his oldest son. And his oldest son had died in a duel because somebody had insulted his father's honor. Um, and uh, he, Hamilton wrote a letter saying that, you know, no man had done more than to prop up this frail and worthless fabric, he's referring to the Constitution, than me, and yet all he's had to show for it is sort of pain and suffering. And he talked about, he said, mine is an odd destiny. Um, and that reflected his despair that Jefferson was undoing what he and Washington had built. He wasn't correct in that. Uh, it turns out that a lot of Hamilton's institutions survived the Jefferson-Madison error, but in 1802 it looked pretty grim. Uh, he was particularly concerned about what he saw as Jefferson's assault on the judiciary. Uh, that that bothered him most, and so no, it did, it never it never eased up. Uh, I mean, I suppose you could argue. Uh, one of the events in Hamilton's life that finished him, in a sense, as a national political figure was the revelation that he had had this uh, extramarital affair. And that story had been uh, put into the, the press by, by Jefferson's lieutenants. So um, 
that's how ugly it got. And uh, the same, the, the only, as a Hamiltonian, the only bright side to that story was that the same guy who wrote the story about Jefferson's extramarital affair is also the same guy who then goes after Jefferson about Sally Hemings. Um, yeah? Um, I was going to ask if you speak a little bit more about the fallout with Madison. Um, they worked so closely together and then so quickly. Well, I don't want to overstate how close they were. They, they, they had been at the Constitutional Convention together um, and uh, Hamilton looked to Madison. He, I think you know he, uh, Bill Allen can certainly talk about this in far greater length than I can. But uh, Hamilton, you know, wanted a Virginian to assist in the Federalist Papers' effort and recruited Madison for the effort. And uh, you know they worked worked hand in glove to produce those you know incredible eighty-five essays on the American Constitution, and they were allied. Uh, it's just within a matter of two to three years when Madison came to believe. I mean, Madison wrote about why the two had a falling out. He simply believed that Hamilton was using kind of sleight of hand to uh, read into the Constitution powers that weren't there uh, through administrative sleight of hand, I think is how he put it, or something to that effect. So uh, Madison began to see Hamilton as somebody who was undermining uh, both the spirit of 1776 and also the Constitution itself through what Jefferson and some of the other folks began to believe are sort of monarchical inclinations. Uh, but it would be a mistake to say that they were ever tight, uh, but they were certainly allies for a time. And I think that bothered Hamilton much more than the break with Jefferson. Yeah. Yeah. But what would Hamilton make of the current um, economic situation and Barack Obama's hard um, thing, cash for clunkers and all that? What would he, would he even know what to do about that? Oh, I'm sure he would know what to do. He'd tell us all what to do if he were here today, <laughs> believe me. And he'd, for six hours, you'd have to listen to it. Um, uh, it's really, really a dangerous thing to do to try to apply the lessons of the founders to contemporary policy disputes, but since you asked, I'll try. I mean, he, he, he certainly believed uh, that the, the new American economy in the 1790s needed protection uh, in order to get, get off the ground, so arguably this is somebody who seems to believe that there are occasions where the government has a role to play in assisting the economy. Um, outright ownership of uh, particular industries. Uh, you know, he did, he was behind the creation of this uh, sort of experimental project in New Jersey called the Society for Useful Manufacturers, which was set up in Patterson, New Jersey, which was given basically government credits to try to set up a one of the first manufacturing centers in the United States. So I guess what I'm saying is there, there you can see certain things where he seemed to believe that government had a role to play in, in assisting the American economy. But uh, I have heard 
Geit, Tim Geithner and Henry Paulson say they wish Hamilton was around. You know, they've jokingly made reference to him and what a what an economic genius he was, and and he was. Was I, I would argue I don't think David agrees. We 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 taught a course this summer where I took the Hamilton role. He took the Jefferson role. I, I do believe that Hamilton is the, the father of the American economic system. I think David's a little more skeptical about that and believes that it probably would have arisen on its own, although I'll let him speak for himself. But, uh, um, you know, the creation of the National Bank was a, a deeply divisive issue and one that Hamilton firmly believed would unleash American productivity, and, and it, it seemed to do that. So he did believe there was a role to play for government, but it was usually to sort of get things going and then step out of the way. So you know, buying GM or whatever and doing things like that, I don't know. Oh, Mr. Allen. Yes, uh, Professor, I have one question that's really a question for both of you, so you can answer it now, and <laughs> Dr. Tucker can answer it later. Uh, in the early 20th century progressives, uh, on the strength of Herbert Crowley's analysis, mm -hmm. used to profess themselves as pursuing Jeffersonian ends with Hamiltonian means. I'm not sure that anyone has ever made sense of that, so I will turn to you to ask. <laughs> it could, could be understood as the worst of, of two worlds. <laughs> what does it mean to Jeffersonian ends with Hamiltonian means? Well, I always assumed it meant the Jeffersonian ends mean, meant you know, uh, equality and equal rights under the law and using government institutions to close those. You know, I think some of the progressives argued that the political questions had been settled. Now we had to deal with economic disparities, therefore you needed an energetic government to ensure that within the economic sphere, uh, Americans had, there was kind of a level playing field. Uh, so I'm not saying that was legit, but I think this idea of the Jeffersonian ends being uh, equal rights for all in a sense, and the Hamiltonian means being a somewhat powerful energetic government to achieve those ends and to check runaway economic power, you know, unbridled Wall Street and so forth. So let me just follow up. Yeah. Does that yeah. effectively then reduce Hamiltonian, Hamilton's contributions to nothing much more than the abstract instantiation of the Machiavellian state, i.e. energetic government detached from purposes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a great, it's a great question, yeah. great statement, and I don't, I don't have a good response to it. Yeah. I mean, I, there's always been this question, you know, was how committed was Hamilton to the so-called spirit of '76? Clearly, Jefferson believed he was not; that Hamilton was only interested in power. I, I guess now I'm kind of pulling myself together. I would say that you know Hamilton was a believer in the spirit of 76 and was a believer in liberty. Um, it's just that his pronouncements were fewer than Jefferson's and were far less eloquent. But I think he was a, a follower of the Enlightenment principles that you see in the Declaration. Uh, but arguably, I guess, he left the door open for abuse. That's yeah, ma'am. Oh, there's a phrase that I like. I heard once. It's called the tension of the opposites. 
and it explains a lot of things in life. So this seems to me to mm. be what you're saying about the two men. Between the two men. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah and in, in a way we're still playing out that debate today uh, between Hamilton and Jefferson. The Democratic Party views itself as the party of Jefferson and Jackson. You know, they, Jefferson being a limited government man, that there's clearly some contradictions there. But <laughs> there are Republicans who, you know, will occasionally you know, see. Clearly, Lincoln was the founder of the Republican Party, but there's a link of sorts between the Republicans and the Whigs, and then quite a few of the Federalists. So. Hamilton is sometimes, more so in the 20th century than in our century, cited as one of the founders of the Republican Party. So these two opposites uh, in some ways set the parameters of our debates today. Um, Washington as president, I think, wanted you know, these extremely talented, experienced men in his cabinet. I think over time he got really tired of it, though. I mean, it just became brutal. And when you've got Jefferson putting a guy on the State Department payroll to publish anti-administration publications, you know, you got a problem on your hands. And that's a kind of dispute that's not particularly healthy, I don't think, Washington. And by, by the way, I should point out, by the end of Washington's life, he would have nothing to do with Jefferson. Right through the end of Washington's life, he spoke very admirably of Hamilton, and that always spoke volumes to me as somebody who admires George Washington uh, incredibly. Um, Jefferson had basically accused Washington of also selling out the spirit of 1776. It's a pretty, pretty brassy thing to say uh, against the person who had basically <laughs> given you your independence. It, it's always irked me that both Jefferson and Madison, neither of whom had ever fired a shot or been fired at, although Jefferson arguably, while well, he was retreating uh, from the British in Virginia, I suppose you could make the case. But Hamilton and Washington had li literally put their lives on the line, and yet five, six, seven years into the new government, they're being accused of being whores of Great Britain. Astounding. Um, I guess I'm going to ask you about a counterfactual argument that's not so far in the future. I'm just curious, had the duel with Burr um, not actually killed Hamilton, mm -hmm. um, and we sort of play out Hamilton's life just, say, another 30 years or so, how might you envision his legacy changing? I mean, how would he have responded to somebody like Andrew Jackson? Oh. Jackson would have put him into a grave, uh, <laughs> either through a duel or. <laughs> um, his career was over. I mean, I, I hate to. Uh, he, he the sad thing is he was probably going to write some sort of almost memoir. Uh, that was lost, and that is a loss. Uh, uh, but he, his party was dying. Um, it would have bothered him immensely to see how the War of 1812 was conducted, but in terms of a resurrection of any sort for him, I, I just I don't see it. He was such tarnished goods, both for the Maria Reynolds affair and also the fact that he had undermined John Adams' quest for re-election in 1800 with a pamphlet that he issued a few weeks before the election in which he 
basically accused John Adams of being unstable, which was accurate, but not something. <laughs> <laughs> that that was the problem with Hamilton. He he was just too honest for his own good. He was a terrible politician. Thomas Jefferson was a great politician. And Thomas Jefferson knew how to pull strings behind the scenes. Hamilton thought that was beneath one's dignity to do that. And so... So did Jefferson. Did he? Interestingly. Yeah. Although he did it all the time. Which would have been better politics. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, Ham Hamilton, in military terms, Hamilton was a believer in frontal assaults. <laughs> Jefferson was a believer in flanking movements. Yeah. Uh, but I think his career was, was over, and in, you know, in some sense he kind of knew that. Not that he walked out on that field and committed suicide, but I think he saw his last patriotic act was to make sure that Aaron Burr would be finished in American politics, and in a sense he was. So... Uh, Hamilton fired his shot into the air, I firmly believe. Uh, Burr fired his shot into Hamilton. So. Uh, yeah? Just one of the things that I think is missing from the discussion of Hamilton is, is there's no discussion of the checks that he believed that should have been on government. He, he gets presented, rightly or not, depending is on the government should do everything. Yeah. Could you discuss a little bit about what you see as the things he felt down the road were really supposed to be checks on government through the judiciary branch or, or anything like that? Well, with the judiciary branch, as I said, he believed there would be a certain character that would be in place, uh, the judges would uh, be of a certain temperament that they would be self-restrained in a sense. Um, he believed that the national government had some pretty clear areas of responsibility, war, commerce, finance, negotiation, things like agriculture, you know, forget it. That's a state, local responsibility. He uh, literally, in the Federalist Papers, says that there's just no way that the federal government would want to get involved in something, I didn't put it this way, but something as mundane as agriculture. Now, of course, he was wrong. But that's why I don't see him as, some do, as, uh, as a New Dealer or, or believer in, I mean, he, he had... He wanted an energetic government, national government, but within certain clearly defined areas. He wanted an energetic judiciary, but he wanted them to read the Constitution as, you know, in, in what we would say today would be strict constructionist terms. Uh, he believed in elections. It's just that, you know, when you make a speech at the Constitutional Convention and you say you want a president elected for life, you know, people get a little antsy about that. But they were being elected. It's just that we'd be in year 30-something of the Jimmy Carter presidency right now, so... Are we still? So, yes, sir. I have read some places that in Jefferson uh, helped Hamilton out in that when Hamilton was trying to get the public debt bill through the House and the Senate, yeah. especially the House, and that Jefferson had the dinner that supposedly, according to Jefferson, sealed the deal right. in Washington, naming D.C. area as the capital. Correct. Do you think if Hamilton had not gotten that bill through, would he have resigned? There are some authors who huh. said that if he had not, he was very down because he couldn't get Madison. Madison was so strong against the public debt bill. Mm. 
that he was thinking about resigning. Have you come uh, Yeah, I, I, he, Hamilton could be moody. Um, I mean, he would be a bit up and down. Now, if you work a week straight pumping out the report on manufacturers, I'd be a little moody too. Um, I mean, he, he would just plunge into these endeavors. My guess was, you know, occasionally he would just get down, as you said. Uh, I doubt he would have resigned. Uh, particularly Washington would have, you know, really worked on him not to do that, not to resign. So. It's interesting, Jefferson did help him. He did, in that early instance. And of course, Jefferson later regretted it and said it was one right. of the biggest mistakes he'd ever made in his yes. life. Yeah. Yeah. But then, of course, Hamilton helped Jefferson become president. Yes, that's a, thank you, Laura. That's a, uh, in the election of 1800, when it comes down to uh, Burr and Jefferson, uh, you know, Hamilton throws his support behind Jefferson, whom he says, Hamilton says, if there's any man I should hate, it's Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> uh, but he believed that Jefferson had certain qualities uh, that Burr did not have, uh, you know, Burr in, in Hamilton's view. And by the way, most of the founding fathers believed this about Burr, that he was utterly without principle. If there's one thing that the founders agreed on, it was Burr. Um, now, interestingly, that hasn't stopped folks. There have been a number of biographies of Burr in the last 15 or 20 years that have tried to portray him as a, one, one of them refers to a Burr as the Adlai Stevenson of his day. Kind of an egghead with uh, feminist inclinations. I mean, this was a guy who was, well, you know, it's just insane how there have been efforts to, to rehabilitate Burr. Uh, in the face of all evidence. But, you know, part of that stems from just the deep, there's a, just a deep strain amongst Americans who are engaged with this period, just a strong dislike of Hamilton. They, they really view him as somehow alien to the American experience and that he injected these um, European or more old world sentiments into the American experience. And he wasn't one of us. I mean, you literally hear this if you read the the rhetoric of the Jeffersonians and then some of their descendants down the road, he, he wasn't one of us. It's a very sort of uh, ugly side of the American character. Yes, ma'am. Uh, great question. Was religion ever an issue between the two? Um, Near the end of Hamilton's life in 1802, he talked about, since the Federalists weren't doing all that well, he talked about creating a Christian constitutional society, he called it. Uh, he believed, I think, that the accusation against the Jeffersonians were that they were hostile to religion. And you had a scare campaign in 1800 where people were supposedly burying their Bibles in the backyard because the word was if the Jeffersonians won your Bible would be confiscated. Um, now I don't, uh, amongst people who study Hamilton, was this a genuine conversion on his part to, to uh, a more expressive Christianity? I'm skeptical. Um, one never knows what's inside somebody's heart, but uh, it was prob if I had to guess, a practical political calculation that this might be the most effective way to counter the, the wave of Jeffersonianism. Uh, so that's about the best I can do in terms of answering your question about religion being an issue between, between the two. Um, so, like, Jefferson, didn't he have, like, the 
Yes. Again, a great question. I, I, I don't think so, except I'd have to go back and look at what, when he had this Christian constitutional society that he started talking about, whether that was one of the concerns that they were going to to focus on. And I, I honestly can't give you an answer. I, I don't think so, but I, I don't think either one of them were particularly religious. Although when when Hamilton was dying, he hung on for about 36 hours after the duel, and uh, you know he did he did want uh, they they did bring a a minister actually it was I believe an Episcopal bishop in to uh, give him the last rites, and he he did want that, um, and actually they had a hard time finding somebody who would do it because dueling was something you were not supposed to do as a Christian. Great question, so. Yes? Would you say that um, Hamilton maybe had a more realistic idea of what it would take for the nation to survive yeah. going forward? I mean, yeah. as opposed to Jefferson, who, while obviously very intelligent and great, may have had a more limited, immediate scope, um, and that like, strong, uh, I guess, central power would be necessary to stand up against yeah, I, I do think Hamilton was more of a realist uh, than Jefferson, although you've you got to be careful with that because there's the Jeffersonian rhetoric and there's the Jeffersonian presidency, <laughs> uh, which was in many ways Hamiltonian, although it was covered with this gloss. You have to kind of peel the layers back to find the Hamiltonianism, but it's there. Uh, but I do think Hamilton was of a more practical bent. Uh, one of his criticisms of Jefferson was that he was too theoretical. Um, and, you know, all I can say is thank God there was somebody like Hamilton there because you can't, in my view, build a revolution or once your revolution is done in order to establish a sound and stable government, you need people like Hamilton around. And Arguably, the American experiment could have failed without such practical mindsets as Hamilton, like, all right, we've got to get our financial house in order. That's something that was not a top priority for people like Thomas Jefferson. And it's not, it's not all that exciting. Yes, sir? Could you apply the modern phrase, you need to uh, campaign in poetry and govern in, in prose? <laughs> Great, great line. You need to campaign in poetry and govern in prose. Yeah, that's. Is that his line? Very nice. Yeah. Yes. Well, just sort of the flip side of the point you just made. Um, it, was there any any real theoretical foundation or, or basis from which Hamilton was working? Um, I mean, I think I'm trying to remember what the, the uh, Jefferson's trilogy. I don't know if you really believe this, but Jefferson's trilogy of great men. Uh, Locke, Bacon, and Newton, I think. Uh, is there anything like that for, for Hamilton? Um, or was he really a genius in the, in the literal sense of sort of ju just, just brilliant at solving problems um, you know, by his own lights without reference to any, um, any sort of fixed uh, source of um, theoretical guidance? Yeah. Very good question. Again, uh, oh, by the way, when Jefferson says Locke and Newton and uh, supposedly Hamilton responded, the greatest man who ever lived was Julius Caesar, which is a myth 
I, a possible myth because Jefferson's the source of the story. <laughs> and, <laughs> a very likely myth. And the story, Jefferson first recounted the story in a letter, I believe, 20 years after the events, the dinner conversation took place. So just to point that out, that Jefferson is constantly spinning the record long after Hamilton is dead. Hamilton had no chance to, you know, for any sober second thoughts, perhaps, about certain things. Um, again, <clears throat> in some of his earlier writings, you see the same kind of commitment to uh, enlightenment principles that you see in Jefferson. That fades away over time. I don't think it's because he's changed his mind and he's, you know, moving in a, in a authoritarian direction or whatever. He's, he, but he is, he was the kind of person who tried to translate theory into reality. And uh, that's the focus that when he fires off these massive reports on manufacturing or the need for a national bank or the need, in 1780 he wrote a letter uh, about all these changes that need to be made up to the Articles of Confederation in order to ensure that the American experiment work. I mean, and he's in his 20s, but he's already thinking in very practical terms about how are we going to make this thing work. And, uh, you know, again, thank God, in my view. But you wouldn't go so far as to say, you know, that which works was his, his foundation. I would it's not. Pragmatic. No, I would. No, that's right. There's something. Yes. There is. Guiding his thought on this other than utility or some version of it. Yes, there is. And, and again, you know, he, uh, one line from a very early publication of his, I believe it's this, uh, uh, the, the Farmer Refuted, I believe is the name of the, the, the letter. Um, he talks about the rights of mankind descending from you know, the hands of God and that no, no man can can divorce you, can separate you from your God-given rights. I mean, he's he's clearly, in my view, a believer in in those principles. Again, just to conclude, uh, just one last thing. Um, you know, I, I I do think it's unfortunate that he uh, has not been given his due. And um, if you go to New York City today, they've moved his uh, they moved his home uh, to a a section of Manhattan, uh, of Harlem where there's a park uh, and the National Park Service is committed to trying to bring bring his home sort of up to modern conditions and uh, uh, it's just uh, it's just sad in a way that we haven't done right by him but hopefully events like today will uh, straighten the record out so thank you very much